Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It started in the Garden of Eden, and we have been committed to it ever since. When we are at fault, we all point the finger of blame, and we all work to convince ourselves that the party to blame is not us. Adam pointed his finger at Eve. Eve pointed her finger at the serpent. Neither one of them accepted blame. And since then, there has been generation after generation of finger pointers. When we have done something wrong, it is not in our nature to look inside ourselves for the cause. Sin makes us shockingly self-righteous. It makes us all committed self-excusers. Somehow, some way, we all buy into the delusion that our biggest problem lives outside of us, not within us. The lawyer within all of us, pride, is quick to come to our defense in the face of any accusation of wrong. We become quite skilled at presenting the argument that what we have done says more about the flawed people and dysfunctional things around us than it does about us. When our consciences bother us because of the faithful, convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are all tempted to dodge blame by locating the cause elsewhere. We all tend to be much more concerned about the sin of others than we are about our own. But the Apostle John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Accepting blame, admitting our faults, taking responsibility for our actions are not natural behaviors for us. We cannot, on our own, produce a humble, broken, self-examining heart. Only the rescuing and transforming grace of God can soften our hearts. And thanks be to God, we are under that grace, not under law. His grace is at work in us. We don't have to justify ourselves anymore. Through Jesus, we are already justified. Through him, all our wrongdoings are forgiven. This grace should decimate our defenses and lead us to humble confession. It should silence that inner lawyer of pride. It enables us to forsake our own righteousness and rest joyfully in the righteousness of Christ. Only the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, can help us to stop pointing the finger and run to our Redeemer for forgiveness. Every moment we deflect blame, every time we make excuses for our sins, defend ourselves, or shirk responsibility for our actions, we show just how much more we need His grace. Let us then go to that throne of grace. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day that you set apart for us. The day that we are supposed to be strained in the mighty power of your holy word, in the presence of your Holy Spirit, 
So we ask you to open up our minds today so that we can understand your word. And may your Holy Spirit help us to apply in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Perhaps uh, not many of us can remember what was going on in the world during the 50s. But during the 50s, at the Korean War, we have an American company called Baker Company at the war. And as the enemy force were advancing against them, they were cut off from the rest of their unity. And for several hours, no word was heard, even though um, the headquarters was trying to communicate to these troops. But finally, a weak signal was received, straining to hear. But even then, the corpsman asked, Baker Company, do you read me? And then, surprisingly, they got an answer. This is Baker Company. And immediately, again, the corpsman asked, what is your situation right now? Please tell us. And then Baker Company answered. The enemy is to the east of us. The enemy is to the west of us. The enemy is to the south of us. The enemy is to the north of us. At that time, the unit, corpsman, felt sorrow for the imminent loss of their fellow soldiers. But then the sergeant of Baker Company spoke one more time, and now with an amazing determination, conviction, saying, the enemy is not going to get away from us now. <laughs> what? As the kids used to say, are you kidding me? You see, Although they were surrounded and outnumbered, the sergeant of Baker Company was still thinking about victory, not defeat. Defeat was not part of their vocabulary. In the same situation here, when Paul wrote this letter to the believers in the Asia Minors, and he is specifically speaking in Ephesus, they were in the same situation. The city of Ephesus was a religiously pluralistic city. There, there were up to 50 gods and godness that you could worship over there. This city, is, this city here was well known. They had the great Diana, the queen of heaven, lord and savior. People believed that Diana had power and have an earth and underworld. You also need to know that this church here in Ephesus was founded by Paul. He spent almost three years over there preaching the gospel. And in Acts chapter 19, you can see how these people was still trying to mix the gospel with some magical power. In Acts 19, 
we see some Jewish exorcists here, the son of the priest uh, named Sceva, trying to add the name of Jesus to rebuke some demons. But he couldn't. So you can see how the believers here were, were trying to mix up the gospel with some magical power because of this pluralistic city. A lot of deities. You could worship anyone you want. So Paul found here an amazing struggle to, to help these believers to renounce their magical practice and to put their trust in Christ and His power. So when we consider the background here of these believers who had come from a long life pattern of concern about the danger of hostile spiritual powers, the fear of being cursed. If you don't worship Diana, you're going to be cursed because she has the whole power. So you can see how the believers here in this church perhaps was, were still struggling in their faith. So it's not surprising to find Paul addressing these spiritual warfare as he does not do in any other letter like he does here. So by writing this letter, the Apostle Paul wanted to draw their attention, their attention, in our attention today, that we are, as they were in a spiritual warfare. And you can see Paul's speech here, pretty similar with the conviction that the sergeant of Baker Company had. The determination to remind the believers here that they were not fighting for victory. There were fights to stand in Christ's victory. That's the, whole, that, that's the whole point of the letter here. To get at this point and say, listen, you're not here to fight for victory. By the way, we could never win Satan in our own. So this piece here in the letter is to remind the believers in Ephesus, in the whole Asian Minor, that they were supposed just to stand firm in Christ's victory. That's the whole point of the letter. They need to remember that because Christ's victory is our victory, is their victory, in Christ, God's mighty power, and we're going we're gonna to see here which power you're talking about, because Christ's victory is our victory in God, in Christ. God's might power is also available for us today to stand firm against the evil one. And I hope you can understand that today. And we're going to see this reality here in three main points. The nature of our battle, the nature of our enemy, and the nature of our resources. And generally, just, to, just for you to understand how the, the whole letter points to this piece here. In chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul explained 
the indicatives of the gospel. In other words, what Christ has done for us, what we have inherited in Christ, justification, adoption, election, predestination, all this richness of the Reformed theology. But then, chapter 5, 4, 5, and 6, Paul is going to call their attention that it is time to live in light of the indicatives of the gospel, what we call the imperatives of the gospel. That's why he starts chapter 4 by saying, walk in a manner worthy of the call that you receive. In other words, live in light of the gospel. And now here in chapter 6, uh, verse, uh, verse 10 here, is the climax of this practical way of living out the gospel of Christ. Be strong. It's a commandment. It's imperative here. So the nature of our battle. Let's look at verse 12 here. And I'm reading from the ESV, which says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. The first thing here to notice is the contrast between two battles here. There is a flesh and blood battle. And Paul is not talking about our nature, you know, that we wrestle in our temptations and struggle. No, no, no. The flesh and blood battle here is a physical one against human opposition. But then there is a second battle here, which is the, the, the spiritual battle against to a far more deadly enemy, which requires a divine empowering from God. And another thing here to highlight so that we can understand the nature of the battle is that word wrestle. For we do not wrestle against these and that. We wrestle against the rulers. We wrestle against the authorities. The word wrestle here is pretty interesting because Paul could use, could have used a word in a military language. But he didn't. The word wrestle here is a kind of personal combat, very close. It's not kind of war you fight from far away. You send a bomb. No, no, no. It's a personal combat here. Even um, this war that uh, verse 16, 17, the piece of the armor, is not a long sword. It's a small one. Because we are supposed to wrestle. It's a close combat. What, what does it mean for us? It means that we are supposed to expect struggle, fight, wounds. We are supposed to get our hands dirt. Because this spiritual war is very close to us. Very close to us. So the question is, where is this battle fought? Where is it? 
I came from the, the Pentecostal background. I mean, I preached this passage many times. And at that time, we had this mystical approach to this passage. But today, I hope you can see that it's not so mystical. It's a close reality to us. And this battle here is fought in first place in the supernatural context. It's not mystical. But it's a place which Paul calls the heavenly places. Can you see that? Against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. Which is, which is basically the place that we, God's children... Those who have been born from above is the place that we exist with Christ. In chapter 2, Paul said that we are already in the heavenly place, sitting with Christ. And now it's the same place for the spiritual warfare here. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Listen. What Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly place. The same place. Another verse here. Chapter 2 verse 6. And raise, up, and raise us up. Talking about God. And God raised us up with him. With Christ. And sit us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. So the heavenly places here. It is the place that we believers share in Christ's blessing. But we also share with Christ in this spiritual warfare. It is the same place. You cannot hide yourself from this reality. If you are in Christ, sharing in Christ's benefits, in His blessings, in His merits, you are also sharing with Him in this spiritual warfare. The Old Testament also gives us some idea of the heavenly place. You may recall that this place where, is the place where Satan himself Engaged in evil actions against God's people. Remember Satan's allegation against Job. Questioning his motivation. Later on, Satan charged against the high priest Joshua. Who had his garments exposing his guilty heart. And finally, Daniel... Daniel's prayer, when an angel came to him and explained that the delay of it is in terms of spiritual warfare in these heavenly places here. So the heavenly places here is the supernatural context. But there is another context here. It's not explicit here, but it's implied by the flow of the letter. The other context here, I call the ordinary context of our daily life. 
Paul had just spoke about husband and wife relationships, children-parent relationship, slave and master relations, and now he introduced this spiritual battle. You see, the battle, the spiritual battle, which starts in the heavenly place, also materializes itself in the ordinary context of our lives. In everyday relationship, in everyday conversation, in everyday situation, at school, children, those, those who go to school and not homeschooling, in our job, it's there. So watch out. And here, Paul is calling their attention that it is time for them not just to create this dichotomy. Oh, where is the spiritual place? The church. And what about when I go home? Oh, it's done. So that could be their mistake. So Paul is calling their attention that in every situation in our life, we are supposed to make sure that the devil gains no foothold against us. And the only way for the Ephesians to stand firm was by leaving out the gospel, the truth of the gospel in every area of their life. Every area of their life. As husband, as wife, as employee, as employers, we are supposed to watch out about what the devil is doing in the normal context of our lives. Our first fathers, when everything seems to be normal in their house, in the garden of their house, Satan came and tempted in the fall. So watch out Way you, the way you speak with your kids, the way you speak with your wife, the way you answer to your husband, it is there that we are fighting against the devil. So who is the devil? Who is our enemy here? You know, in warfare, the most important element is reconnaissance, investigation, survey, learning, as much as possible about our enemy before we meet them. Verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So who is our enemy? Our enemy is not our wife may sound sometimes. It's not our husband. It's not our kids. It's not the government, first of all. Our enemy, as Paul is saying here, he is a schemer. He is a crafter, a deceiver, a deceptive. Revelation 13, 11. John had this vision about Satan having two horns. Looking like a lamb, but speaking 
like a dragon. In other words, the devil is all about appearance. It's all about appearance. Now, what Paul does not say here in this passage is how these schemes, the flaming arrows, as, as he call in verse 16, how these flaming arrows can be discerned or felt. He doesn't say, but I think given the broader context of Paul's thoughts and the scripture as a whole, there are many ways that the devil can set his attacks against us. For instance, by false philosophies, false religions, false ministry, false doctrines, false teachings. Ephesians 4, 14 Paul says, so that we, you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carry about by every kind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. And when I was reading this passage here, in other words, Paul was calling the Ephesians to be aware of the the, the doctrines, the teachings, the apostolic teachings, so that they can discern the false teachings. And when I was thinking about it, I thought, well, what is the strength, what is the power of the devil? Besides being an angel, a fallen angel, we know he has supernatural power. But besides this supernatural power, what else? gives Satan power to act against us? And the answer is one word. Ignorance. Lack of knowledge. We don't devote ourselves to God's word to learn. And it seems that this reality of spiritual warfare is at odds for the majority of the Western world. Perhaps because of a, um, a secular materialist worldview, which denies the existence of supernatural powers, or at least their involvement in human affairs. So, there is a problem here. We Christians, if we deny this spiritual reality, we are going to expose ourselves. We are going to expose the health of the church to Satan's schemes. As Dr. Lay Jones express, expresses his conviction about this spiritual warfare and how the Western world especially Americans, think about it. He says, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All things have been attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitudes and thinking. We are ignorant of this great fact, the being, the existence of the devil. 
and his fiery darts. You see, brothers and sisters, how foolish we would be to think that we are exempt from Satan's attack. We're going to expose ourselves much more. But I noticed that, that the opposite arrow at this point is superstition. And we have a lot in South America about it. Superstition and fear that leads people to see the devil everywhere. Everything is about devil. What you have done? Oh, it's not me, it's the devil. What are you doing? Oh, it's the devil. So we want to find a balance here. We don't want to give Satan more power than he really has. But we don't want to undermine his power at all. We must respect our enemy. But not fear him. Become aware of his schemes, his methods, but not preoccupied by them. So the correct path here is for us to be guided by scripture's sober, modest presentation of the devil. So let's stay with what scripture says about the devil. But that's not enough. It is not enough for us to stand firm in Christ's victory just by knowing the nature of our battle or the nature of our enemy. We need to know the weapons that we have. What, what are the weapons that we have here? The nature of our resource. Let's go back to verse 10. Finally, be strong. Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord. And... In the strength of his mighty. Or as the NIV says. In his mighty power. In his mighty power. And it is very interesting here. The way that Paul is speaking. Because it it's echoes Joshua's speech. I don't know if you remember. Deuteronomy uh, 31. You can turn with me if you want. Chapter 31, verse 6 and 7. When Joshua was about to succeed Moses and to cross the river, it was the same speech. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Yeah, that's pretty similar. What about Chronicles? Second Chronicles. Turn with me. Chapter 20. When Jeho Jehoshaphat was praying, surrounded, outnumbered, going to war, Fearing. And then the prophets came to him and said, Listen. Second Chronicles 20 verse 15. Listen all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you. 
Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at, the, at, at this great horror. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go thou against them. And verse 17. You will not, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. It's amazing how Paul seems to echo back to those passages saying the same thing. Be strong. Be strong in the Lord. In his power. And what power is Paul talking about here? The Ephesians knew. They had read the letter as a whole. Chapter 1. Verse 19, 20. Paul is talking about the power of God. That raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power. In Romans. The same power. Romans 8 verse 11. It is the power personified in the person of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and now is living in you. That's the power. There is nothing mystical here as I learned it before. No, no, no. It is the Holy Spirit applying Christ's benefits in our life. That's the power. You see in the heavenly place, we share with Christ a spiritual battle. But we also share with Christ divine power. We are not alone. We are not fights with our own power. As I said, these are the indicatives of the gospel. What Christ has done for us. Resurrection. The power of the Holy Spirit. Be strong in the Lord. And the strength of his mighty. Can you see a command here? Be strong. It's time to live out the gospel. But it's interesting because the word be strong. Although sounds like an imperative. A command. It is instructed in a passive form. It's not about heaven exercising. Let's, let's be strong. Let's be strong. No, 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 no. It's in a passive form, which means a lot for us. Give us a lot of hope. Because we need to read that, that passage as saying, be empowered. In other words, let Christ empower you. You don't have to do nothing. You just have to believe in what Christ has done for you. And that's the way we are empowered here. So let Christ empower you for this battle. How? Chapter 1. By knowing that we are in Christ. Verse 3 to 14. That's the whole idea of being empowered. Chapter 4, verse 15. By growing up in every way into Him who is the head. The head of the church. 
In other words, by being transformed. That's the way that we empower us. Chapter 4, verse 24. By putting the new self. The same language. That's the way that we are supposed to be empowered. By putting the new self. Forgetting about the old. The new self. Who is the new self? It is Christ himself. And now here in chapter 6, verse 11, 13. With a military language. Making the same points. We are supposed to be empowered by putting the whole arm of God. By taking up the whole armor of God. I know a lot of people when look at this passage. They think about the Roman soldier. Isn't it? They think about. Oh Paul is looking. Picturing here a Roman soldier. He's not. The sword by itself shows that it's not a Roman soldier. It's a small sword. The Roman soldiers at that time. They have a long what Paul is envisioning here is what the prophet Isaiah prophesied in the Old Testament chapter 11 at your house you can read how Paul is describing here the messianic divine warrior who would come from the stump of Jesse Jesse but more specifically here Isaiah 59, verse 16, 17. Listen. He saw that there was no man. No wonder that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as breastplates. And a helmet of salvation in his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And wrapped himself in zeal as a cloth. You see, Isaiah is anticipating what was about to come. And if we think throughout Christ's life and ministry, we can see that these words were fulfilled in Christ himself. In other words, Christ is the one who proved. The reliability of this armor here. This is the arm of God. This is not a Roman soldier's arm. This is God's arm. By using this arm, Jesus himself fought against Satan. Now the good news is that he's sharing with us the same armor. That's the good news. So, although God has struck our enemies, the devil, and he did already. He, Jesus did fulfill Genesis 3.15 by crushing the head of the serpents. Although God already struck our enemies, the flaming arrows of the devil continue to assail God's children today. And now between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation, God is only calling us to stand firm. It's much easier 
than fighting for victory. Just stand firm in Christ's victory. And the assurance that we have that we will never fail is because in Christ we are sharing the same power, the same victory. There is no reason to fear. There is no reason, even if you look at your body, even if you look at the church around the world, you are thinking that we are losing. We are winning. We are already won in Christ at the cross. So I hope today you can be built in the Lord and in His might power. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your amazing grace, your call, your call for us to stand firm in Christ's victory. We praise you because in Christ we not only share in his suffering and in this spiritual battle, we also share in his victory. We share in Christ your divine, mighty power, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, guiding us, open up our eyes at our house, at our job, school, wherever we go. Please remind us that we are in a spiritual warfare. We are fighting not for victory, but just to stand in Christ's victory. In the age to come, we will finally share with the spoils of the war of Christ. So we praise you. We praise you for this amazing victory we have. Although we not deserve, but you graciously has given to us in Christ. Please remind us, not just today, but tomorrow. Here at the church, it's pretty easy to stand firm. But in our house, in our job, school, in our relationship with wife and kids, and it is there this Satan will attack us. So help us, O oh Lord, to remind us of our weapons, that we have everything to stand firm. There is no excuse. And Satan is not going to get away from us. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We've said many times here that this is a meal, and physically speaking, and what we see is very a very plain and simple meal. There's simple bread set before us and simple red wine. Yet at the same time, you are invited to get something, get a great deal out of this. 
You were summoned here to feed upon Christ and all that Christ contains. And he is infinite. And so how, is, how can this be? How can we hunger and thirst for something that's immeasurable, something that's never-ending, something that's endless? Doesn't that sound impossible? Well, because this is a spiritual meal and not just an ordinary meal, that hunger must be a spiritual hunger. In the Beatitude that we just read, the Lord instructs us that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. It promises that we will be satisfied. What a glorious promise that will be, or that is for us. Notice that this place, that he places no limits on this. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're hungering and thirsting for the real thing, there's no such thing as gluttony. Overindulgence is not possible. We may have as much as we want. Here is the bread of life. The more you eat, the more you are filled. And the more you are filled, the more you are able to eat. And here is an infinite amount of the most intoxicating wine there ever was. And the more you drink of it, the more, more sober-minded and the more clear-headed you become. So come to Christ's table. Come hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Come and be filled. Come, be satisfied. Come with hearts that are full of thanksgiving. This table is for those that have trusted in Christ for the salvation and are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. Invite you to come, fellowship here. But if you're not sure of your standing with Christ, I ask you to, to refrain, retrain, or refrain I'm sorry. So, let's come. This is the body which is broken for us. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.